0: Hello ladies and gentlemen, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm going to cover in this audio, Hebrews 10 verses 1 through 14, I have chosen to entitle this section of scripture, Jesus is a better sacrifice than animals. Our context is this, in the last part of chapter 9, in our last audio, I entitled that last audio, Jesus the Perfect Sacrifice for Sin. You'll notice the two titles are close together. Actually, the chapter division between chapter 9 and 10 is somewhat unfortunate because it's the same topic the author is talking about. So basically, we're going to continue this talk here about how Jesus is better than animals for a sacrifice. We start in verse 1, Hebrews 10. Since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the actual form of those realities, it can never perfect the worshippers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. Now, what law is being talked about here? Of course, the law of Moses. Here's a review of what the law of of Moses, of how the law of Moses has been described so far in the book of Hebrews, and we'll see it falls way short of what's necessary for our justification, sanctification, redemption, and glorification. First of all, it's called a shadow. I'll talk more about this later on. Shadow as opposed to the substance of the New Testament, New Covenant law. It, uh, the... Old Testament law will only last until the time of restoration, so it was not permanent. Hebrews nine ten says this: they are physical regulations, the regulations about the earthly tabernacle, and only and, and other regulations about the Old Testament law. They are physical regulations and only deal with food, drink, and various washings imposed until the time of restoration. What's the time of restoration? That's the Messianic age. Whenever you see phrases like that, days of refreshing, time of restoration. The days to come. The good things to come. I'm talking about the Messianic age. Well, Mosaic law ain't going to be around in the Messianic age. It's obsolete. Hebrews 8.13, by saying, In new covenant he has declared that the first, that that is the Mosaic covenant, is old. And what is old and aging is about to disappear. The law makes nothing perfect. Hebrews 7.19 says this, For the law perfected nothing. But a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. The better hope being Jesus, of course. The law is set aside because it is weak and useless, Hebrews 7.18. So the previous command is annulled because it was weak and unprofitable. And the old covenant has been changed to the new covenant. We read in Hebrews 7.12 this. For when there is a change of the priesthood, there must be a change of law as well. A change from the order of Aaron, the Old Testament Mosaic law, to the order of Melchizedek, where Jesus is the high priest of the new covenant. So let's go back to verse one of Hebrews ten. Since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come, and I've just listed reasons why the law is a mere shadow of the good things to come, then I study Bible summarizes all those weaknesses of the law and says that the law is a shadow of Christ's ultimate sacrifice on the cross. That was the reality. Shadow substance. The substance is Christ's sacrifice on the cross, and the shadow or is. All those animal sacrifices in the Old Testament. Now, here's a great analogy from the master of analogies, my good friend Steve Ackerson. He says that he asked this rhetorical question, Who do you prefer to love, your spouse or a shadow of him or her? Well, of course, you want the reality, don't you? Here's some scripture showing that the Old Testament law is a shadow of the ultimate reality of Christ. Colossians 2.17, these are a shadow of what was to come. The substance is the Messiah. That verse is referring to regulations concerning food, drink, and festivals. The Old Testament regulations are a shadow of what to become. The substance is the Messiah. Colossians 2.17 Hebrews eight five. These serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Talking about the plans for the tabernacle. As Moses was warned when he was about to complete the tabernacle. A copy and shadow. The tabernacle is the shadow. Heaven is the reality, the substance. Now, Adam Clark says that there are some deeper meanings to the Greek word that's used for shadow. The word, according to Clark, quote, signifies technically a sketch, a rude plan or imperfect draft of a building, landscape, man, beast, etc. So we can say the law is a sketch of the good things to come. It is a rude plan of the good things to come. It is an imperfect draft of the good things to come. Now, what are the good things to come? that the author is talking about here in verse 1. Those are things belong to, belonging to the New Covenant era, as Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say. It's the age to come. And it was still to come because 87, hadn't happened yet. Now here's some scriptures talking about good things that are coming. Hebrews 9, 11. But the Messiah has appeared, high priest of the good things that have come. And notice that's the Holman Christian Study Bible translations. Half the translations have the good things that will come. That are to come. Because the book was written in the 60s somewhere. In the 80s, 60s, the good things that were coming was the full establishment of the new covenant after Jerusalem was destroyed in 80s, 70. Or if you translate it, the good things that have come, it's talking about what Jesus did when he came in 80. 4 BC, when he was born, and when he did it, when he well, when he died in 8030, that way he established the good things of the new covenant. Then it doesn't really matter whether you're looking back to 8030 or looking forward to 8070, the point is, is that good things have come because it's the messianic age now. At the end of verse 1, the author says, It the law can never perfect the worshipers. I've already mentioned the fact that the law cannot perfect here again in our verse, it's mentioned again. The verse I read earlier is Hebrews 9.9. This, the tabernacle is a symbol for the present time during which gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the worshiper's conscience. Perfect means make it complete so that you can stand without condemnation and guilt before your God. Now at the end of verse 1, the author says that these sacrifices, the Old Testament sacrifices, are continually offered year after year. Well, the fact that they were offered year after year shows they didn't take away sin. If the first year the sacrifice were, sacrifices were offered had taken away sin, there wouldn't be a need for the second year for those sacrifices to be continued. Hebrews 10.11, which we'll get to in just a minute, says, Every priest stands day after day ministering, offering, offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. The emphasis is they've got to do it over and over and over again, and somehow the sins just don't go away. Hebrews 10 verse 2, otherwise wouldn't they have stopped being offered since the worshipers once purified would no longer have any consciousness of sins, which illustrates the point I just made. That's a rhetorical question, and the answer to it is yes. Yes, they would have stopped being offered if they had taken away sins, but they didn't. We still have consciousness of sins. The Old Testament worshipers still had consciousness of sins under that system. Now, this implies that Jesus' sacrifice can get us free from thinking about our past sins in the way that the Old Testament sacrifices never could. We feel guilty, we feel depressed and dragged down about our sins, but we can get past that because we can get to where we no longer have consciousness of sins because Jesus wipes our slate clean and he washes us as white as snow, washes the sin away. Now, I know that believers have pangs of consciousness from time to time. I have, you have. But that's our flesh. That's not reality. The reality is, is your sins are gone. He doesn't see them. They're as far way as the east is from the west. They're buried at the bottom of the sea. So there's no point in looking back at your sins and saying, Oh, I'm condemned. I'm, Jesus hates me for what I did. I feel so bad about what I did. Well, that's perfectly understandable, but it's not scriptural. Jesus puts us in a place where we no longer have consciousness of sins in a way that the Old Testament could not. Hebrews 10 verse 3. But in the sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. And of course that's the real purpose of the Old Testament sacrifices to remind people that they were sinners. Not to take the sins away, couldn't do that. Only Jesus could do that. But they do remind us the fact that these sacrifices have to be offered over and over and over again shows that we are still sinners every day. That's the Old Testament, where we are reminded of our sins all the time. But then the New Testament is different. Second Peter one nine. The person who lacks these things, good Christian qualities that Peter has mentioned long-suffering, godliness, and so forth. The person who lacks these things is blind and short-sighted and has forgotten the cleansing from his past sins. Cleansing. Your sins are gone, so we ought not to remember them. Not even Jesus remembers our sins. In Hebrews 10:17, on the next audio we'll get there, the author says, says, I will never again remember their sins and their lawless acts. I will never again remember their sins. It's over as far as Jesus is concerned. So don't condemn yourself, dear Christian. You know, an earthly parent doesn't remember the sins of his child for very long. He gets over the, those sins, and he looks at his child as his child. Is God any worse than that? God forgets our sins. We need to realize how powerful that blood sacrifice was. Hebrews 10:4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. They can remind us of sins, but they can't take the sins away. Why not? As the NIV Study Bible puts it, because humans are made in God's image, and bulls and goats are not. So a sacrifice of a bull is not equivalent for does it cannot take the place in punishment of the human being who committed the sin, because a human being is in the image of God. As a matter of fact, not even the blood of a guilty human being could take away the sins of the whole world. Human being can suffer the. S- punishment for sins of his own sin, but for everybody else in the world, the billions of people that have lived on this planet, only Jesus could do that. Only Jesus' blood. Hebrews nine twelve through 14 emphasizes this point. He, Jesus, entered the most holy place once for all, the holy of holies, not by the blood of goats and cows, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow, sprinkling those who are defiled, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of the Messiah who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciousnesses from dead works to serve the living God. Cleanse our conscience. Cleanse our consciousness. That means we are free from condemnation and guilt. There is therefore now no condemnation. Cleanse our consciousness from dead works. In verse 4, Hebrews 10, the author says, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, This idea of blood, as I mentioned when we were on chapter 9, is everywhere, especially in the middle of the chapter. Blood, 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 blood. And there's a continuation of that discussion here in verse 10. As I said earlier, the chapter breaks between 9 and 10 are not particularly helpful. They are put there by well-meaning translators, but I'm not so sure that was a good idea. Now what blood of bulls and goats? Probably the Day of Atonement. I'm going from memory here. May God forgive me if my memory is inaccurate, but the bull, I know, is the sacrifice that Aaron offered for his own sins on the Day of Atonement, the high priest. And the goat is a sin offering, which was offered to take away the sins of the people. But that was only to ritually take them away, to cover them with understanding that they were really there and they got to be taken away ultimately by the blood of Jesus. Hebrews 10, verses 5 through 7. Therefore, as he, Jesus, was coming into the world... He said, and that's the first He who was coming to the world, that's Jesus is coming to the world. And then He said, that's still talking about Jesus. He said, Jesus said, You did not want sacrifice. You, God the Father, did not want sacrifice and offering, but you, God the Father, prepared a body for me, God the Son. You, God the Father, did not delight in whole burnt offerings and sin offerings. Then I, God the Son, said, See, it is written about me, God the Son, in the volume of the scroll. I, God the Son, have come to do your will, God the Father. Now, as he was coming into the world, as Jesus was coming into the world, there's some different options as to when we could take that. We could say before Jesus came into the world, actually, before he was incarnate, while he was still in heaven. John Gill and Jameson Fawcett and Brown suggest that. Of course, during that time, it was proven that animal sacrifices were no good because people realized their consciences were not being made clean. Or the coming into the world by Jesus could have been could have been between the time when Jesus as a child began to reason and the beginning of his ministry. He came into the world when he started becoming an adult, started to understand his mission. Jameson Fawcett Brown suggests but denies that it could refer to when Jesus came into his public ministry. I think that's quibbling, that's hair splitting, who cares? The point is when he was coming into the world sometime at the first advent. Now notice in verse 5, The author says, he said, that's Jesus said, and then he quotes the scripture. Now, we often say that when we say God said, it refers to the scripture. Here's Jesus saying, Jesus is the author of the Old Testament scripture, just like God is. It's inspired. It's inerrant. It's infallible. So he quotes the scripture here. Now, this is Psalm 46 through 8 in the Septuagint translation that is quoted by the author. You, God the Father, did not want sacrifice and offering, etc., but you prepared a body for me. Now I need to focus on that phrase. But you prepared a body for me. That's in the Septuagint, but in the Masoretic text in Psalm 40, verse six, it doesn't say you prepared a body for me. It says you opened my ears to listen. Let me read you Psalm 46 in the Homer Christian Study Bible, which uses the Masoretic text. You do not delight in sacrifice and offering. You open my ears to listen. But in Hebrews 10, five. Quoting the Septuagint text, the author says, but you prepared a body for me. He didn't say, you opened my ears to listen, you prepared a body for me. Now this happens a lot of times. Now I've got some fancy textual criticism stuff that Adam Clark says to try to explain what happened when the Septuagint translators translated the original Hebrew and they came up with something a little bit different than the Masoretic text. I'm not going to get into that, it's over my head really. Doesn't really matter. The point is, is that when the New Testament offers quote in the Septuagint text, it's scripture because the New Testament offer, author quotes. They're the ones doing the quoting, and they're inspired. Just like when Paul quoted Menander, a Greek po- uh, a poet. That doesn't mean that Menander was inspired, but when Paul uses his words, they become inscripturated, inspired words. So we're not going to worry about that. Now, when G- Jesus said, you, God the Father, did not want sacrifice and offering, now, he's talking about it when he came into the world during the New Covenant age. In the Old Testament, he did want sacrifice and offering. He set the whole system up, so obviously he wanted it. But that was just temporary. Now, in the New Covenant age, he doesn't want it. Now, notice how in this psalm, you have God the Son directly talking to God the Father. He, Jesus, said, you, God the Father, did not want sacrifice and offering, but you, God the Father, prepared a body for me, Jesus. So Jesus is talking to God. Now, originally, originally, the psalm was dealing of God the Father, dealing with David. But David, of course, is the quintessential type of Jesus. And so we substitute, the author of Hebrews substitutes Jesus for David. In other words, originally, in the psalm, it was, he, God said, you, God, did not want sacrifice and offering, but you, God, prepared a body. Well, I didn't say prepared a body. He says, you made my ears open. You open my ears to listen, and you, God the Father, do not ask for a whole burnt offering or sin offering. Then I, David, said, See, I have come in the scroll that is written about me, David. I, David, delight to, you, to do your will, my God. So you see, the original psalm was about David, but the author of Hebrews adapts the psalm to for messianic purposes, and then he has the Messiah talking to God the Father, not David, because the Messiah neatly substitutes for David, because David is a type of the Messiah, He is a shadow of the Messiah. The substance of David's, of King David, is Jesus the king. Now, Jesus says to God the Father, You, God the Father, have prepared a body for me, Jesus. How did God prepare a body for Jesus, and why did he do that? Remember, he was saying that he didn't want the sacrifice of ghouls and boats. However, but he did want a human body of his own son, Jesus. And that's the connection between the bulls and the goats and the body for Jesus. That makes the statement, I have come to do your will, more poignant because God's will was to have a a perfect sacrifice for the sins of the people. Bulls and goats would not suffice. So he says, I'm going to send my son. And Jesus says, I have come to do your will. And so Jesus gave the sacrifice to God that God wanted as opposed to the sacrifices that God did not want, bulls and goats. Again, in the new covenant era, he did want them in the old covenant era. He wanted sincere sacrifice, though he didn't want just empty ritualism as we'll see in just a minute. Then I, Jesus said, verse 7, see, it is written about me, Jesus, in the volume of scroll, I have come to do your will, God. Now, there's some question about what scripture is being referred to when Jesus says, it is written about me. John Gill says that Jesus is referring to Genesis 3.15, I will put hostility between you, the devil, and the woman, that's Eve, and between your seed, the devil's seed, and her seed, Eve's seed, Jesus, he... Jesus will strike your, the devil's head, and you, the devil, will strike his heel. Jesus will completely conquer the devil at the cross. Jesus' heel will be struck because he was crucified, but not permanently. He was nicked. Well, that's not a direct quote. I have come to do your will, God. It's not a direct quote, but everything about Jesus is doing the will of God. So anything you can find in the volume of the scroll, that's the Old Testament. Anything you can find in there about the Messiah... It shows that the Messiah came to do the will of God the Father, and he did it. Now, it is written about me in the volume of the scroll. I gave you one suggestion, the Proto-Evangelium in Genesis 3, maybe. But more generally, we can say that the Old Testament scripture is full of types and prophecies of Jesus, the coming Messiah. John Gill says it's the Pentateuch that Jesus is referring to, where it's written that Jesus came to do God's will. But I think it's just the types and prophecies of Jesus. Just make a general statement. I think that works pretty good. The volume of the roll, the books are written on skins and rolled up. That's why it's called the volume of the roll. And Jesus says, I have come to do your will. The NIV Study Bible makes this remark. The Mosaic sacrifices are replaced by Jesus' submissive obedience to the will of God. Not my will, God, but your will, is what Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then he offered himself for sacrifice. I have come to do your will, God. And that's what the Son did. He was consumed with the idea that he was doing the Father's will. As we should be consumed that we do the Father's will for our lives. Here are the scriptures that emphasize that. Luke 22, verse 42. Father, this is Jesus speaking, if you are willing, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That's the verse I just quoted in the Garden of Gethsemane. Also, John four thirty four. My food is to do the will of him who sent me, and to finish his work, Jesus told them. That's just one example, there are many others. I have come to do your will, Jesus said. Hebrews 10, verse 8, After he says above, you did not want or delight in sacrifices and offerings, whole burnt offerings and sin offerings, which are offered according to the law. The author here is referring to what he had just said in verses 5 and 6 about I do I, I do not delight in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings and so forth. He just repeats it. Now this is the good time to quote that famous verse in First Samuel fifteen twenty two. Samuel said, Has the Lord has great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. Listen means to obey." So now. We've got to make a distinction here. Of God wanted those sacrifices and offerings when He set them up, but He didn't want people to offer them the sacrifices in a, in a dead, mechanical, ritualistic fashion, with no heart contrition behind the sacrifices. You notice the ESV says, in First Samuel 15:22, "Has the Lord as great delight." In other words, He delights, but He delights more in obedience. He delights in the sacrifices, but he delights more in sacrifices plus obedience. So we need to be careful. We don't need to knock out the whole Old Testament system during the Old Testament times. However, in the New Testament, God says that, God the Father says that he has prepared a body for the sacrifices that need to be offered, and that body was Jesus' body, and that means that the bulls and the goats are kaputsky. They're gone. They're over with. He took some delight in, in them in the Old Testament, but the Old Testament is over with. Hebrews ten nine. he, God, then says, see, excuse me, He, Jesus, then says, see, I, Jesus, have come to do your will, your God the Father's will. He, God the Father, takes away the first, i.e. the first covenant, to establish the second covenant, the new covenant. He takes away the first Mosaic covenant to establish the new covenant of Christ. Now, when the author says, he then says, that's talking about God, because God was the author of Old Testament Scripture, and he quotes Psalm 48 which says, I delight to do your will, my God, and your instruction is deep within me. And the quotation that the author of Hebrews makes is Hebrews 10:7. Then I said, see, it is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. It's not an exact quote, but it's close. I have come to do your will. We go to verse, well, let's talk about the first and the second covenant, covenant again. He takes away the first, takes it away. It's gone. It's over with. We're not under it anymore. Moral, ceremonial, and judicial. It's over. He doesn't say he takes away the the ceremonial and judicial aspects of the first Mosaic Covenant, but he leaves the moral law intact. He never says that. That's Reformed theologians and Covenant theologians who say that. He takes away the first to establish the second. Of course, that's the New Covenant, which we read about in Hebrews 9.15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. Because the death has taken place for redemption from the transgressions committed under the first covenant there's the new covenant tran- uh, contrasted with the first legalistic mosaic covenant hebrews 8:13, by saying a new covenant he has declared that the first i.e the mosaic covenant is old and what is old and aging is about to disappear so the new covenant is jesus's covenant now i i used to be confused about this whenever you see covenant in the book of hebrews there's only two that it's talking about the old mosaic covenant and the new covenant There is no mention of the Davidic Covenant, the Noahic Covenant, the Abrahamic Covenant, the Adamic Covenant. Any other covenant you want to talk about, real or imagined, is not talked about in the book of Hebrews. It's just old Moses and new Jesus. Hebrews 10.10. By this will of God we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. The body that God prepared, the body which Jesus presented to God because he said, I've come to do your will, O Father. That offering of the body on the cross sanctified us. Now, of course, sanctified means separated from profane things and consecrated to God. I always say separated from the world and dedicated to God. Easy definition. Cares the idea of being made pure because you're not going to be dedicated to God unless you're pure from your sins. The NIV translates sanctified as made holy and that shows that the word, anytime you see the word sanctified or sanct, sanct sanctuary means the holy place. A saint means a holy one, a holy person. Sanctified means to make someone holy. They're exact synonyms, easy to define. Now, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, but of course his soul was also sacrificed at the same time. We tend to overlook that, I think. Think about the bloody sacrifice on the cross. But Jesus offered up his soul, his life, too, as John Gill points out. This sacrifice was done once and for all, Now, briefly here, let's consider the possibility that he was sacrificed once and for all people. Unlimited atonement advocates sometimes use this to support their erroneous position. The general sanctification idea that Jesus died for all people, that's not what it means. And besides, you could say it means for all groups of people, Jews as well as Gentiles and so forth. But we don't even have to get there. We don't have to go there because that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about time. We're contrasting the first covenant, old covenant in Moses' time versus the new covenant in Jesus' time. That's very clear as we go through this. This has nothing to do with any arguments about unlimited atonement. So what it means is that Jesus Christ's offering was made once for all time. In other words, it doesn't have to be repeated over and over again because it was effective in making our consciences perfect and cleansing us from sin. So therefore, he didn't have to die again. That's obviously what it's talking about. The context is clear there. We've already talked about this in verses 1 through 3 in Hebrews 10. I'll repeat it again for, to jog our memories. Verse 1, since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the actual form of those realities, it can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. Now there's the contrast year after year sacrifices with once, for all, once and for all sacrifice of Jesus. Big contrast. Verse 2, otherwise wouldn't they have stopped being offered since the worshipers, once purified, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But they weren't stopped being offered, which means that the worshippers' consciousness weren't made clean by those bulls and goats. But in the sacrifice, there's a reminder of sins every year. Not an atonement for sins, but a reminder of sins every year, over and over. But Jesus, he sacrificed once for all. And as we go on in our context, verses 11 through 14 are clearly talking about time, so that'll emphasize the point that this Jesus died once, and for all means once and for all time, not once and for all people. And by the way, this once for all completely cuts against the Catholic doctrine that Jesus is over and over again sacrificing the Mass. I've mentioned this several times. I would imagine the book of Hebrews is an embarrassment for the average Catholic. I'm sure their fancy theologians have a way to get around it. In fact, I read an article where he tried to get around it can't remember his argument but i don't buy it jesus was sacrificed once for all he was not sacrificed over and over again in the mass as the priest rings the bell says the in hoc verbis says the words of consecration and institutes the mass and the body of the the, the wine in the communion changes into the blood of jesus even though it's accidents, so no? his essence does and we can't it still smells like wine it still feels like wine it still tastes like wine but it's actually the blood of jesus please that doctrine was invented by certain theologians who had too much time on their hands verse eleven hebrews ten every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time which can never take away sins again we're talking about time here over and over again now the priest of course is here is the ordinary priest, not the high priest. The high priest didn't offer the daily sacrifices. That was the morning and evening sacrifice. Those famous sacrifices offered about 9 o'clock in the morning and 3 o'clock in the afternoon. The high priest could only offer an offering in the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. So every priest, every ordinary priest stands day after day. That present tent stands. shows the book was written. The book of Hebrews was written before the temple was destroyed in 8070 because the priest was still operating. Now contrast that priest who's standing with the priest Jesus, the high priest Jesus who sits. Jesus was finished with his work when he did his priestly function. The high priest was not finished. Hebrews 10:12, which we'll get to in our next verse, says this, "But this man, Jesus, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He was finished. One sacrifice, it's over. It's done." On the other hand, in verse 11, we see that these ordinary priests, the Levitical priests, stood day after day, over and over and over again, offering sacrifices, just to remind people. They offered the same sacrifices. The types and occasions of Old Testament sacrifices were rigidly prescribed in the law. They didn't change, so the sacrifices were being exactly repeated over and over again. And this repetition shows clearly they weren't working to take away sin. They were merely offering a reminder to the people of their sin. And that time after time there that they're offered, contrast with the once-for-all-time sacrifice that Jesus made his sacrifice. The author, in verse 11, Hebrews 10, clearly says that these Old Testament sacrifices can never take away sins. And again, the whole point of this is, hey, you about to apostatize Hebrew Christians, why would you want to go back? To the Old Covenant, whose high priest and whose priest offer sacrifices that cannot take away your sins, cannot perfect your conscience. You've got a high priest who can do that. Why don't you stay with Jesus and forget the Mosaic priest? The author says here in verse 11, those sacrifices can never take away sins. He is repeating what he has said in verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Here in verse 12, the author repeats. In verse 11, excuse me, the author repeats his point to drive the point home. We go now to Hebrews 10, verse 12. But this man, Jesus, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Notice the author calls Jesus this man Jesus was fully man as well as fully God. That's how the early theologians who were trying to figure out the hypostatic union, the divine nature of Jesus, the human nature of Jesus, they collected the verses, and whoops, here's some verses that clearly say that Jesus was a man. After all, did not Jesus weep? Was not Jesus weary? Just like people. So he was fully human. He had to be human in order to be a sacrifice for us. But this man, after offering one sacrifice, again, the emphasis is on one rather than the many, 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 many sacrifices of the Old Testament priests, which had to be repeated because they weren't any good for taking away sins. But this man, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, again, sat down that shows his work was finished. He doesn't need to keep doing it anymore. He's done it. And when he sat down at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, that means he's established on his throne. Unlike the dispensationalists, many of the classic dispensationalists say that Jesus doesn't sit on the throne of David until the millennium. Fortunately, the progressive dispensationalists have now backed away from that untenable position and say, yes, Jesus is on the throne of David now. Jesus sat down at the right hand of God. The right hand of God is a phrase that refers to a king's power and authority, standard use in the scriptures. We go to verse 13, Hebrews 10. He, Jesus, is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. Now, I think footstool has the, re, re, has the imagery of this. A conquering general or king makes the defeated or vanquished king or general kneel down in front of him, and then the conquering general puts his foot on the neck of the defeated general and says, whew, now you're my footstool. I'm pretty I read that in the commentary somewhere. I'm pretty sure that's true, even though I don't have the notes in front of me right now. So it's a great image there. Jesus is gonna win. Now notice that he is waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. I mean you could say he's waiting until eighty seventy when the his Jewish enemies who killed him, they're gonna be made his footstool. You could say that, but it could be referring to the, all of his enemies through all time that he's gonna make his enemy make his footstool. Here's some scriptures that show this footstool idea. Hebrews 1.13 Now to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool? This is God the Father saying to God the Son, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So Jesus ascends, he's in heaven, and then God's going to make his enemies your footstool. Again, that could refer to eighty seventy when the Jews were wiped out. 1 Corinthians 15.25 For he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. Now that refers to the whole world. Notice that Jesus is reigning. He's reigning now. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father. He's reigning now. But you say, oh, but look at all the evil in the world. Kim Sung Jung Il, or whatever his name is. He doesn't respect Jesus as king. Neither does Mao Zedong Xi Jinping in China. Neither does Vladimir Putin. These people don't recognize Jesus. But Jesus is still said to be reigning. He must reign until he puts all of his enemies under his feet. And basically the picture is this, we have a king, there's still some opposition in the kingdom, there's still some scattered remnants of the enemy troops that are still out there raising a few local rebellions here and there, but the king's troops are going to perform mop-up operations and going to wipe them out. Very optimistic way of looking at the church and the world. We're going to win, we've just got to take care of some last few remaining enemies. It might be 100 years, might be 1,000 years from now, it might be 2,000 years from now. I don't know. But the point is, is we're wiping them out. Because Jesus is reigning in heaven until such time as he has put all enemies under his feet. Psalm 110.1 This is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. This is the declaration of God the Father to my Lord God the Son. This is David talking. Sit at my right hand, God the Son. Sit at my God the Father's right hand until I, God the Father, make your God the Son's enemies your footstool. So Jesus is reigning. He's now seated at the right hand of God the Father. And meanwhile, down here in this miserable world on the planet Earth, God is making his enemies his footstool. He's overcoming them. Now, I mentioned here in Hebrews 10:13, where the author says that Jesus is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. Adam Clark says that this is perhaps an oblique reference to the soon coming destruction of unbelieving Judaism in AD 70. I mentioned that. I forgot to mention that Clark backs me up on that, so I mentioned him too. Hebrews ten fourteen. For by one offering he is perfected forever those who are sanctified. That one offering was Jesus' death on the cross. He is perfected. Perfected means brought to maturity or completion. He is perfected forever. The sacrifice is finished. It's perfect. You, it can't get any better when something is completely perfect, completely matured. It can't grow anymore. Nothing can change it. Nothing can make it better. Perfect sacrifice. He is perfected forever those who are sanctified. So we are sanctified. Of course, we have positional sanctified when we believe in Jesus, without which sanctification no one can see God. But we have progressive sanctification as we live out our life on this earth, and we go up and we go down. We're not perfect, but we're gradually having our minds transformed into the mind of Christ, and we are being transformed into the image of Christ. But the only way we're able to do that is because of that perfect sacrifice which is done on the cross. Cross, He is perfected forever. That means we are going to be ultimately sanctified, ultimately glorified in Christ. You might not feel it right now. You might feel like you're a miserable, lousy, rotten sinner, and you fail Christ. And I don't care. You will be sanctified you completely, perfectly, forever. You will be glorified, in other words. He mentions sanctification again in verse 14. He mentioned that in verse 10. By this will of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. So you see, we were sanctified when Jesus died. That's what the theologians call positional sanctified. It goes right along with your justification. You're justified, but you're also sanctified because God's not going to take an unholy person in his presence. So when he justifies you, declares you legally righteous, he also sanctifies you, which means he completely dedicates himself that dedicates you to himself, which means you have to be pure. So your purity, your sanctification starts right at the point of your justification, and then it increases as you learn through the things that you experience, just like Jesus did all through the rest of your life. In our next audio, we will examine Hebrews 10, verses 15 through 28, the end of chapter 10. We will continue our discussion with Jesus, a much more perfect high priest than Melchizedek variations on the same themes we've been considering in Hebrews. I hope you stay tuned for that audio and I hope you enjoy this one.